Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, as we near the end of the year, our contributing editor Andrew Muller wraps up what we've learned over the last 12 months. We did learn this year, and this we is very specifically the compilers of this weekly monologue, that compiling this weekly monologue is much, much more work when the President of the United States is no longer basically writing it for you. Plus, we look back on some of the best albums of 2021. One thing that people have criticised Wolf Alice for over the years is that they haven't like picked a sound and stuck to it, which seems like a very old-fashioned way of thinking about things to me. But I think the vaulting emotional states of this record make the best use of their ability to do so much stuff musically. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. Normally on the Curator, our contributing editor Andrew Miller recaps what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. But as we are nearing the end of 2021, Andrew wanted to look back on the year that was and collate what we learned from the last 12 months. Here is Andrew. We learned this week that for the second year running, the producers expected any of us to have maintained an attention span longer than seven days and wanted a special year-end monologue wrapping up what we'd learned over the last 12 goddamn months, if you don't mind. Probably what we most learned this year was that all of last year's breezy reassurances to the effect that 2021 could only be an improvement on 2020 were somewhat premature. But we did learn this year, and this we is very specifically the compilers of this weekly monologue, that compiling this weekly monologue is much, much more work when the President of the United States is no longer basically writing it for you. Go on, one more time. And then they have cans of soup. Soup. We learned, or rather relearned, what it was like to live in a world in which Earth's most powerful office was not occupied by America's least qualified individual, and learned to become slowly accustomed to our first waking thought every day being something other than, what's the big goose done now? Which was, you know, not unpleasant. But we learned that the lesson about the relief to be had from ceasing to trust your highest elected office to people who were mildly amusing on television once was yet to be universally absorbed. Uh, With great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband, uh, uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Still, here in the UK, we learned that Brexit was at last done. Hooray. 
and we began to learn of its manifold benefits, including a free trade deal with not only Norway... Yay. 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 What a result. ...but Iceland... ...and... Liechtenstein, which we learned when we looked it up after hearing these joyous tidings, is a hillside somewhere near Austria. Maestro, the national anthem of Liechtenstein. Which, we learned, actually is the same as the UK's anthem, but with different lyrics. We did not learn what Liechtenstein's lyrics mean, as Google Translate has not yet embraced Liechtensteinian, so we assume it's the Liechtensteinian equivalent of God Save the Queen. Like... God Save the Wizard, or whatever it is they have in Liechtenstein. We also learned that Liechtenstein is the world's largest exporter of false teeth, which may yet come in handy for all the extra ganashing likely to be required, so long as Brexit's unapologetic ultras keep trumpeting their triumph in tones such as these. We've got our fish back. They're now British fish, and they're better and happier fish for it. Very much, if you will, crying cod for Harry, England and St George. A Shakespearean illusion, specifically Act 3, Scene 1 of Henry V, wasted on you rabble, this quality content is. We learned when we looked up the truth behind that pronouncement by leader of the House of Commons and Charles Dickens' remake of Pinocchio, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and yes, we know Charles Dickens died 13 years before Carlo Collodi's The Adventures of Pinocchio was published, nobody likes a pedant, that, in fairness, British fish did have abundant reason to be happy. Principally that 83% fewer of them than usual were exported to the EU in the first month after the getting done of Brexit. And yes, those are net exports. And we learned vexingly that COVID-19, still very much with us as we go to air, was quite the inventive, adaptive and persistent pestilence, as well as a brisk if unwanted lesson in the Greek alphabet, as one variant succeeded another. Say goodbye to the UK variant. It's now officially the Alpha variant. The South Africa variant is now the Beta variant. The Brazil variant is the Gamma variant. The Delta variant, first discovered in India, is making itself at home in Europe. Uh, We received news of a new variant, the so-called Omicron variant. We learned, however, that scientific rigour had to be adapted to the realities of both basic communication and international politics, as a couple of letters got skipped. We learned that the World Health Organization gave the 13th letter of the Greek alphabet, new, a swerve because it sounded too much like, well, new. And though new was new, the who knew that if new was called new, new variants after new would not be thought of as new because new had already been called new, and maintaining health messaging during a global pandemic is hard enough without it turning into an Abbott and Costello sketch. Well, let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. And then, uh-huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. And the letter after new we learned is G, which the Who thought it prudent to skate past, given its coincidence with the name of a leader of a nation not famous for its equanimity in the face of trivial or downright imaginary slights. <coughs> 
We also learn, scrolling further down the Greek alphabet, that the next variant we're due is Pi. So perhaps this thing is about to give us a break. <coughs> Come on, break. Savory fillo pastry thing, popular in the Balkans, usually filled with cheese and or meat. Sounds a bit like break, so give us a break. This really is an exceptionally good joke, and not, as you unlettered peasants appear to believe, a bad one. Merry Christmas to you too. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew was just recapping what we learned this year, and Monocle's Robert Bound has also been glancing back at 2021. For this week's edition of Monocle on Culture, Rob was joined by Laura Snapes, Anna Smith and Chris Power to round up the best albums, films and books of the year. In this highlight, Laura runs Rob through some of her favourite albums of the year. We spent about two weeks together, only skip one day, and they say bros over hoes. I'm like, nah, hey, I would rather hold your hand and have a cool handshake but whatever we still could be friends it could still be chance i'ma play it cool we got something we cannot pretend on Laura Snapes' choice is Tyler the Creator um, from the album Call Me If You Get Lost we heard Wilshire from that he's done well <laughs> yeah <laughs> again this year right yeah totally yeah. riding high and all the year endless we just heard like a fraction of that song which is this like devastating cinematic eight minute long song about an unrequited well it's, it's it's like a requited romance but it's with the girlfriend of his friend and so they can't do anything about it but they're deeply into each other but there's this obstacle that they can't overcome and there's that great line in the clip that we heard where he said I'd rather hold your hand than have a cool handshake and over the course of these eight minutes he really grapples with like he wants her she knows that he knows that she wants him as well feels guilty about the friend it's almost like goes through all of the um like the stages of grief figuring out how he (laughs) feels about this relationship and it is gripping like i'll put it on repeat in the car and you're transfixed like you're listening to like a murder mystery podcast or something true crime (laughs) all the details are so good that's that sort of like the the standout song on a record which otherwise finds him at once reflective and like looking back on more of the kind of like hellraiser that he was when he first appeared, yeah. you know, when he was getting banned from the UK by the prime minister because he was too outrageous. Um, and also looking <laughs> Imagine at... that, the, the, <laughs> <No>. the, the horror. <laughs> um, and also looking at the the sort of the spoils of life as he, as he could never have imagined uh, when he was younger that he has now. Um, it's called Call Me If You Get Lost. And the album sort of plays out like this really beautiful travelogue where it's him and his friends like going around the world, experiencing all these super luxurious things like being on a yacht or there's a bit where somebody's like, oh, this French chick's feeding me like French vanilla ice cream. <laughs> and some of the Guardian commenters were saying like, oh, he's just bragging about blah, blah, blah. But I think actually there's a sense of wonderment and awe at these things of somebody who just never thought that they would have them. And it's such an interestingly woven together record. You've got that side of it. And between the songs as well, you've also got these interstitials by DJ Drama, who used to um, like host, curate these really influential uh, Gangster Grills mixtape series, which has been like very low activity for quite a long time. Yeah. But years ago, Tyler said his big ambition was to have a Gangster Grills tape. And he's sort of revived the form. But it's sort of he and he's like rapping really hard on this record in a way that he hasn't on maybe his slightly poppier records that he's released in the past few years. But it's it's such an enormously broad record. You've got the gangster girl side of it. The samples on it are really, really rich. The sound is so broad. And, you know, for his last album, Eagle, he won the Grammy Award for Rap Album of the Year. And when he was accepting it, he was like, I think rap is just a way that you like ghettoize. And maybe it was called urban at the time. Yeah. But he said, this is just a term that you use to ghettoize people that look like me. And not that it's ever been in you know, sort of um, in doubt. But I think this record shows the breadth of his 
ambition and like his scope and his artistry i think it's really incredible and reading around this um album call me if you get lost i heard some reviewers sort of refer to it as a kind of like patchwork and it's based on baudelaire and you mm-hmm. know this kind of idea of flat the flanner and yeah, w- yeah walking or traveling around the world and being kind of flash and having a great time and writing everything down i suppose right yeah and joy the, uh, sort of you know reveling in it those yeah. details are so charming one of the other ones that i really love is um somebody just repeatedly exclaims in one song there's quite a few guests on it I've got my feet out and I'm on a yacht and there's just something so joyful about I've got my feet out which <laughs> really tickles me every solving time. the problem of what shoes to wear on a yacht mm-hmm. which we all no. have grappled with haven't we many times what do you do just get your feet out Crocs Crocs <laughs> says Laura Snapes um, that was Call Me If You Get Lost we heard a little bit of it called Wilshire the artist is of course Tyler the creator and that's his uh, he's clocking them up his sixth um, solo album um, next Wolf Alice who, yeah, they've had a, a sort of solid year, a lot of a lot of love for this this record. Yeah, definitely. So their second album won the Mercury Music Prize, and I think there was quite a bit of surprise around that, and I think maybe there was the air of people thinking that it was the only sort of like consensus vote within that year's um, Mercury cohort. Um, but this one is even better than that. Like, I've always thought that they were quite good, but I don't think they've ever made such a complete piece of work as this one. It's called Blue Weekend. Um, and when they were when they were first making it, um, they were recording in Brussels with the producer Marcus Drafts, who's who you work with if you want to sort of like capital G, capital B, go big. Like, he works with <laughs> Arcade Fire and Florence and I think Coldplay. And that's a risky thing to try and do if you're... Can we have a bit less echo? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're for... Like, I, Wolf Alice are brilliant, but I think one of the nice things about them is that they are not posturing at all they're quite sort of like shy nice young people and they don't seem to have been changed by whatever fame they have at all um and then also the the pandemic started while they were in the studio in brussels and so they decided to well they were trapped there so they stayed there and they meticulously refined the album and i think both of those things could have been so risky going big when that's not in your nature and meticulously refining something i think really risks sucking all the life out of it but somehow the opposite happened um and it's this big beautiful cinematic record they said in lieu of being able to try songs out in front of a live audience they would play film clips on mute and play the songs over the top and see if they felt sort of big enough like they talked you know, I like that yeah they talked about like finding scenes of yeah. people driving along with their like head hanging out the window of the car and seeing if a song would fit um, <laughs> the sort of AM rock yeah. play okay <laughs> and, and it has quite a cinematic sweep across the record as well like it starts where it starts with a song about Ellie Rousel, the singer, has said that it's probably her least memoir-like album. So I don't want to say it's her, but the protagonist of the album, breaking it, like falling out with their friends really badly. Then I think one of the songs after immediately after that is about a relationship breakup and realize or realizing that your partner's been cheating on you, but opting to stay with them. And then the mid part of the album is really nihilistic in a way that I think when you have become untethered from the things that keep you grounded, you can veer into that quite easily um and i think you know one thing that people have criticized wolf alice for over the years is that they haven't like picked a sound and stuck to it which seems like a very old-fashioned way of thinking about things to me but i think the vaulting emotional states of this record make the best use of their ability to do so much stuff musically like there's really great sort of big epic rock songs on there and then there's almost like this camp psycho billy rager kind of thing (laughs) there's this beautiful ballad called uh, the last man on earth which is sort of psychedelia in that like bowie pink floydy kind of way and it's 
you know, it's, it's tonally different all the way through, but it hangs together so beautifully and it's got lots of genuinely moving moments on it. And I think that Ellie Rousel's songwriting as well, I don't think it's ever been stronger. A lot of the songs aren't what they seem at face value. Like there's one called Delicious Things and the, the basic storyline is her protagonist is in LA being swept away by some guy taking drugs and saying yes to everything. And it can sound a bit sort of naive and wide-eyed, but she's singing about like, actually the vibes are kind of wrong here. I know this guy's only here for one thing. And it ends with just a line from a phone call where she's saying, hey, is mum there? It's me. I just felt like calling. And you just see how easily all the bravado collapses. Yeah. I I love it. Okay, Laura. Um, Well, obviously, I've been rather remiss. We haven't heard the clip that we should have done at the beginning of this bit. Uh, This is Wolf Alice, and this is How Can I Make It Okay? That was music writer Laura Snapes in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound earlier this week. When recapping the past 12 months, we of course have to touch upon the Summer Olympics. And it's to Friday's edition of The Globalist that we turn to next. Chris Jemmerk headed to Japan to speak to Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson to hear how the Summer Olympics in the city went ahead, despite a number of pandemic-related setbacks. Fiona, not to relitigate too much to start, but I, one question still is... Did these games really have to happen? Did Japan have to host them this year? That is a great question, Chris, that nobody could answer. And it kind of depended who you asked, I think. Certainly at the time, as you know, we talked about it so much. Public opinion polls were firmly against it. The IOC pushed heavily, I feel, on the Japanese government. Japanese government was slightly, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place. Very difficult to cancel at the last minute. All the athletes were ready. You know, they they seem to be very indecisive. And I think for Prime Minister Suga, that was very difficult to recover from. So I think if you say, did it have to happen? Honestly, the answer is probably no, they didn't. You know, what was the priority? And that was the question a lot of people were asking here is what's what's the priority? Is it people's health or is it having this this global event, which we are being told here in Japan that we have to have to to boost everyone's morale? And I think that didn't go down very well. Well, that that is the question, isn't it? For Japan and abroad, there was some of this feeling that we needed sports events uh, this year to sort of boost morale. I mean, on that note, there was a record gold medal haul, as I mentioned. Looking back, I mean, are the games viewed any more positively now than they were at the time as a result of that? Well, I think even at the time, you know, we noticed this, didn't we? As it got closer and closer, and then once it started, I think a lot of the resistance, it softened a bit, and you felt people... I wouldn't say warming exactly, but they, you know, they were interested. They did watch, particularly watch Japanese athletes. And there were some amazing performances. And, you know, as you say, yeah, there was a record medal haul for uh, for Japanese athletes. So it was a bit of a mixed feeling. I think there was a slightly, it sounds a bit strange, to say, but there was a slightly melancholy air to the whole event. It felt a bit sad that it was happening right in the middle of Tokyo in all these beautiful venues Tokyo looking at its best and the people in Tokyo couldn't see them in person. I think that was really hard to get over. And, you know, it was also incredibly hot at the beginning of the Olympics. I don't know if you remember watching these these young skateboarders being fried in the open air um, skateboarding venues. Um, 
So, yeah, very, very much mixed feelings. And I, I think, as you say, there was a, a definite warmth about the, uh, the way it went for the Japanese athletes, which, which slightly helped the situation. Well, as you say, people were not allowed to attend. You, however, as a journalist, did go to, to some events. Uh, I mean, what was your personal feeling being there? What do you remember? What was a particular highlight for you? I mean, I just felt so lucky. I saw so many events. I really felt like, wow, there will never be an opportunity like this to be front row of the 100 metres final, men and women. You know, I went to the dressage. I went to the swimming. I, I saw the karate. I saw the sport climbing, which was a new event, as was karate. You know, it was very exciting for me. I'm, I'm massively interested in architecture. So to see some of the 1964 venues come to life again as Olympic venues, they've, they've still been used. They've been in continuous use ever since. But, you know, Budokan... Yoyogi National Gymnasium. These are really iconic Tokyo landmarks. So to see them again as Olympic venues was very exciting. But there was a slight pain to the whole thing. I felt very sad, you know, a few journalists turning up to see these unbelievable performances. And the, the volunteers were really trying to bring the good cheer. But it was it was very, very uncomfortable, this feeling that, you know, these performances were really, you know, people couldn't enjoy them. So I personally, I absolutely loved seeing it in person, in the flesh. But I was feeling very, very uh, guilty that none of my, my friends in Tokyo could, could join me. No, absolutely. I mean, well, one thing you mentioned there was also the architecture. Uh, these were the most expensive games in history. What about that infrastructure, the stadiums? You talked about the, the ones from the last Olympics, the new ones that were built as well. What has happened to all of that? What will happen to all of that? Yeah, I think the final bill we won't know till next year. And, you know, I imagine they'll be trying to squirrel away as many of these as possible into other other areas because the bill, you know, is already looking at to be at least $20 billion. Many people think it's near nudging $30 billion. It's just astonishingly expensive, the whole thing. And it wasn't just the, you know, the infrastructure. But as you say, yeah. So basically, they reused some of the venues from 1964, gave them a facelift. You know, they looked at their absolute best. They built a lot of temporary venues, which were dismantled very quickly after. And there were a couple of absolutely brand new venues, the swimming venue, the gymnastics arena, which was really spectacular, actually. That was a very, very impressive new building for which they brought in Masao Saito, who'd worked on Kenzo Tange's 1964 gymnasium. For anyone who's interested in architecture, that's very exciting to see him brought back. Just he's such a brilliant engineer. And I think what we're seeing is that the national stadium, which was it was very expensive, not as expensive as it was going to be originally, but it was still, you know, one and a half billion dollars plus. That That's a bit of a problem. You know, just the maintenance costs of that building are huge and there aren't many takers. So I don't know what the future for that will be. It, it will certainly be used for, for big sporting events and possibly the 2025 World Athletics Championships. And it's a stunning venue. You know, it'd be a shame if it wasn't used, it really is an interesting, it's, you know, it's built very, very low rise, you know, Kengo Kuma, who, who was, he wasn't solely responsible, but who worked on the final design, wanted it to be a symbol of where Japan is now. It's a slightly low key stadium in, in, in a curious way. It's not a big bombastic stadium announcing Japan, which was more the mood in 1964. I think for this Olympics, it's more about you know, apparently there was an emphasis on sustainability, but that's that's been uh, rather uh, scrutinised and it doesn't come out too well. Sort of accusations of greenwashing floating around. It's very difficult to have an event of this size and for it to be uh, properly uh, green, I think. 
Well, and Fiona, finally, what about the political cost as well as the the actual cost? I mean, has Fumio Kishida and have other Japanese politicians learned lessons from this experience? Will there be some sort of lasting change in their approach to dialogue with the public, perhaps listening to the public as a result of the Olympics? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think... You know, as I was saying at the beginning, I think the Japanese government just wasn't decisive enough at the beginning of the year. It didn't want to make a, the tough decision, you know, to an event that was already t- delayed by a year. Where, where are they going to cancel it? They didn't want to make that decision. And they came across looking very uh, indecisive. And the IOC came out of it rather badly as well. And, you know, that's a bit of a shame in a country that absolutely loves the Olympics. It, it left a very sour taste. So, you know, it, and it did have a huge political cost for Yoshihide Suga. You know, he is no longer prime minister. And I think the new prime minister, Fumio Kishida, is taking, you know, that is his approach. He says it's much more about listening to people. You know, it's very difficult to make these decisions relating to COVID. And every decision is scrutinised. You know, and the mood now is pretty much as it was in the summer. People feel, you know, uh, you know, we've, we've got another variant and, and they want to see that um, COVID is the top priority. And Kishida and, and the governor of Tokyo, Governor Koike, she said the same thing. That is the priority. And I think that's really what the public wanted to hear and will continue until it's it's resolved. So the next big question for Kishida is, Prime Minister Kishida, is when do you open the borders? And that's a very difficult one. Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson in conversation with Chris Chermak for Friday's edition of The Globalist. Still to come here on The Curator, we sit down with the CEO of Miami's iconic luxury retail complex Ball Harbor Shops to look at the changing face of bricks and mortar retail. We delve into a title self-described as a special projects magazine. And we tuck into food diplomacy and take a closer look at the role of food in global politics. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with the curator of our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippi. For last weekend's edition of The Stack, the show's host Fernando Augusto Pacheco took a closer look at a beautiful title, self-described as a special projects magazine. The Unseasonal was founded by Austrian artist and photographer Ger Ger, and the latest issue is titled Night's Whim. Ger Ger told Fernando more about the magazine. So it started many years ago when 
when suddenly I, I, I had like really this concrete idea actually to launch a magazine. And I, I was obviously thinking a lot about it before doing so, because I was in the industry and in the business for, for a long, long while. <laughs> and so um, I think you need to have nowadays a really, really good reason to, to launch a print publication. But it still has a very good time because it was actually before people were really so aware of climate change. I mean, of course, you can say like we were aware of like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, but like, you know, like read the mass. And so it just restarted to be this main, main, main focus on a daily basis. And so the unseasonal was for me something that works in fashion because, you know, a couple of years ago, reader designers started just to to, to change their, their schedules or they would otherwise get burnouts and they would just exit the, 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 the industry. And like, so we were all running faster and faster and faster, especially in fashion. And it just didn't really work anymore. You, you realized it did not work. And just the pandemic, of course, helped now to make it really, you know, pop, basically. And um, I, I think the whole bubble worked just for a while. And so DN seasonal is something that is the unusual. It's um, off seasons. It's we are doing our own thing. And I like this idea of being off season because sometimes in the off season, you can find true beauty, which I think it's also what your magazine represents. Because I have to say the design of the title is amazing. I mean, I think you got a lot of prizes as well. And I think because of the work you do, I think that's something you prize a lot as well because it, it visually it's turning. It is special product as well. Yes, thank you. Um, so I, I think the unseasonal also works so well, of course, in the world. And that's why I also mentioned really climate change, because it's so much also our um, DNA in a way, because we want to change really the world. We want to inspire to change the world and stay very, very, very positive at the same time. And so like it also really makes sense because the, the seasons, you know, are really indeed Unfortunately, of course, sadly, I'm changing in the world. And tell us about some of the features, because it's such an interesting collection. I have to tell you, one of my favorite stories was uh, with Kate Yanai, the Bacardi feeling, because <laughs> I, I love that sound so much. And I, I thought it was quite interesting to be represented. How do you, how do you select? I mean, it's quite, I, I wouldn't say random, but it is an interesting collection of stories. Yes, thank you for mentioning that story. Um, I think especially it's an interesting story because so many Europeans in particular can connect to that feeling. It's nostalgia, right? So we work a lot with nostalgia, a lot with tradition, like it's a really timeless publication, you know, so in a way, we just choose something that is almost like like a mixtape. It's about a feeling. And that's also how I feel. It's definitely not like a typical fashion magazine at all, right? But it is about the feeling of fashion. It's about a certain style. But like, it's so much about emotions and how, like, what we connect, you know, with. And so that was like just really important as for that story, but also so many others. And then we try to find, you know, like, how does every single story connects to each other in each issue. So again, like it's really like an old fashioned mixtape that really works well and hopefully, you know, is on the shelf for a long, long, long time. And you can just come back to it and read a little bit more. And so it's all about that feeling. Ger Geroff, the Unseasonal magazine, speaking to our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco for last weekend's edition of The Stack.
Next to the Chiefs, where a new season has kicked off to get us looking ahead to 2022. In this week's episode, Monaco's editorial director Tyler Brule sat down with Matthew Whitman-Lazenby, CEO of Miami's iconic luxury retail complex Ball Harbor Shops. They looked at the changing face of bricks and mortar retail and why Ball Harbor's intimate approach will sustain through major expansion. Here is an excerpt of their chat. Give me your impression of of where, and I know this is a big question as well, but where the shopping center, you know, call it a mall if we will, where it's heading. Because I just came back from Seoul. I visited the Hyundai, so you know, it's Hyundai's new flagship department store. Now they call it a department store, but in many ways, it almost feels like a mall because it you know it has the name of of, of one brand, uh, of course, over top the door. And yet you go in across, you know, seven plus floors, you have boutique after boutique after boutique. And there's not a lot of, of mixing of new brands in the way that a department store used to be this real melange of different things happening, at least with very good department stores. But it wasn't this environment where everyone had their own defined design language. Does it cause conflict? Is it difficult today running you know, a center like you have when you've got anchor department stores also trying to figure out their way in the world as much as you being a landowner and, and a manager also trying to forge your own way in retail as well? This has been a slow and steady shift um, that you have aptly described. My grandfather was Stanley Whitman. He was somewhere between a really good acquaintance um, and a not so, <laughs> not so close friend. Uh, Stanley Marcus, of course, the, the, the visionary mer- uh, merchant behind Neiman Marcus. The days of a department store being run by, um, by a shopkeeper, um, by someone who was focused on, on the merchandise and on connecting with, with customers and, and on creating this assortment of departments that were, that were catered, cer- certainly in the mission of, of the store, but also to be responsive to the community that they serviced, um, I'm going to say something controversial, but those days are over. Department stores, as you've just described them, are no longer a building in which there are departments that are sort of curated by merchants. They're buildings that now have leased out this corner to that tenant and that corner to that tenant. And they really are many malls. And that is a, it happened slowly and then it happened suddenly. That's a fundamental shift in the way that retail centers in this country operate. Because now all of a sudden, whereas in my grandfather's day, the idea was that you would bring in these very large stores who would, you know, quote, anchor, unquote, your, your center. And, and the landlords and the, and the department stores were, were partners. The, the department stores supplied all these people who came in droves to shop their wares. And that benefited the shopping center developer because his, his smaller stores now, now benefited from the draw of these department store anchors. But now, really, what you have are are, are little are little mini competitors. Um, so it, it it really has drastically changed the the uh, at least the, the the American mold for for shopping centers. Let's um, focus on the expansion. So when I hear this, it panics me because I would say you know there's this you know when I when I land uh, you know in the U.S. Southeast, I always want to go and check out Bell Harbor, and and I come back to it wasn't just you know reading off any notes. I've walked your your development many times, and and it it is this this intimacy and this and this scale. And to be very frank, it's concerning an expansion because you know we're at a time right now when even even in good places, you know, leasing uh, leasing periods and and just getting out to get the right shingles above the door is is difficult. So, 
I don't know, put me at ease. Uh, tell, tell me about this expansion uh, and, and why it's going to be good for Bell Harbor and, of course, for your customers. I appreciate that you're concerned because my, when my family and I sat down, my, my grandfather, of course, was, was still alive in those days. We, we grappled, too, over, over um, being extremely protective of and maintaining that intimate human scale. Uh, but as, as we've discussed um, today already, recognizing that you need to be responsive to the needs of your customers and our sort of you know our first layer customers are our tenants and then their customers are also our second line customers and what we were hearing was availability of space was insufficient for their needs and frankly so insufficient was it for their needs that they voted with their feet and started opening stores in, in other parts of town where they didn't have they hadn't previously opened stores because they had they had essentially limitless opportunity for space. Again, it's helpful to use to use data. The nearest shopping center to us is north of us in the town of Aventura. That shopping center is over 2 million square feet. Bell Harbor Shops today is around 450,000 square feet. And when we expand, it'll be a little over 600,000 square feet. So the, the scale is still very small, considering that its focus is so narrowly on uh, the luxury end of the retail spectrum. And we went to great lengths and arm wrestled with, with a number of architects who, who all understandably want to make their, their mark and want the new part of the shopping center to feel like it was born in 2022 and not 1965. But we think that the, the fabric of, of the existing center, its scale, the way that it frankly celebrates the stores themselves and, and lets the built world kind of disappear behind all that magic, that creates the compelling destination that we think resonates with people on an emotional scale. And so when we're done, we hope that someone who's never been to Bell Harbor Shops before can't tell where the expansion began in the old part ends uh, because it really should feel, all of it should feel like home. That was Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, in conversation with the CEO of Ball Harbor Shops, Matthew Wisman lazenby for this week's edition of The Chiefs. Next to a newly appointed Chiefs, as we look back to Tuesday's edition of The Globalist. In Germany, this year marks not just the end of the era of Angela Merkel, but also that of Jens Weidmann. He's been the head of Germany's central bank, the Bundesbank, since 2011, and steps down at the end of this year. Weidmann was a polarizing figure who clashed repeatedly with Mario Draghi and other European leaders during the height of the European debt crisis. Now Germany's new Chancellor Olaf Scholz has reportedly settled on a replacement to helm what is Europe's largest central bank. Monaco's news editor Chris Jermak caught up with the economist Karsten Brzezki. He's the global head of macro at ING Research to unpack what this means for Germany and Europe. Karsten, let's start by kind of going back a decade. The, the German Bundesbank has long had this reputation for being a thorn in the side of European central bankers and politicians, I mean, often at odds with many of them. Jens Weidmann joined as head of the Bundesbank in 2011, and he really played that role to perfection, didn't he? 
Yes, he did. And and even though we actually, I thought that he would be a better uh, Buddhist bank president, different than his uh, predecessor back then, Axel Weber, who was a huge star in the side of uh, of ECB presidents. Um, and Weidmann was supposed to be a bit more pro-European, much more balanced. And I honestly think he still is. Um, but he had many difficulties with Mario Draghi when Mario Draghi was still head of the um, of, of the ECB. Um, he was very often opposing whatever it takes, the uh, asset purchase program, and clearly told the German public about it. He did, as you say. He was very vocal uh, as this sort of opposition German voice. I mean, it also strikes me in that sense that Jens Weidmann is stepping down at the end of this year, just about a month, of course, after Angela Merkel stepped down, who was also this mixed sort of sometimes vilified figure, particularly during that European debt crisis. What was your impression of how those two got along? I think they got along very well because uh, not everyone knows that Weidmann was her aide during the euro crisis. I think starting financial crisis until the peak of the euro crisis, Jens Weidmann was the economic advisor of Angela Merkel. So I think they, they got along very well. Normally, they are pretty soft-spoken. I think they have a good sense of humor. And Jens Weidmann, despite all the criticism he had on the ECB, Jens Weidmann really is an expert in the field of monetary policy. He is an expert, as you say. And one other aspect, I mean, there's the European debt crisis, and then there's also this sort of age-old issue that the Bundesbank always focuses on, which is inflation. And I mean, the Bundesbank is famous for that, watching out, warning against rising prices. I mean, this is, of course, the talk of so many governments now at the moment, if we fast forward, so to speak, we're all seeing our food energy prices rising as we sort of come out sort of of this pandemic. What has been the role of the Bundesbank and Jens Weidmann before he leaves, uh, you know, as uh, as in this sort of post-pandemic-ish period? Well, I think especially this year was the year in which Jens Weidmann could actually shine because this was the year of surging inflation. This was the year in which he could finally say, listen, I, I always told you so. Uh, loose monetary policies eventually will lead to higher inflation. Well, you know, he, he didn't predict the, uh, the pandemic. He didn't predict all the post-pandemic, say, characteristics of supply chain frictions. But anyway, we do have a severe, significant inflation right now. And the funny thing, maybe the irony is that Jens Weidmann steps down at a time in which the ECB just started to very gradually exit from its ultra-loose monetary policies. That was the big decision now at the December meeting. So I think Jens Weidmann at the start of the year 2021 was one of the, of the lonely warners against inflation. In the second half of the year, also the ECB finally woke up to the new inflation reality. And I think that, that Jens Weidmann probably thought, yes, actually, I, fi I finally get the appreciation that I deserve. <laughs> so Jens Weidmann sort of leaves in this I told you so mode, I suppose, uh, when it comes to the rising prices and the need for the European Central Bank to tackle it. I mean, in that sense, then, let's move to the, the news of this week, which is that we have a potential successor to Jens Weidmann being named by the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz. His name would be Joachim Nagel. What do we know about him? Well, not a lot, to be honest. Uh, we, we know his, his uh, resume, his curriculum vitae, so 
is bred and brought up at the Bundesbank, long-standing career at the Bundesbank, then was sent away to be the state-owned investment bank, the KFW, and then recently moved to the Bank of International Settlement, so the, the central bank of all central banks. What we know is that for someone who has such a long-standing service at the Bundesbank, he must just follow with the ideology of Jens Weidmann. So he will also be this orthodox central banker to continue the fight against irresponsible monetary policies, to lose monetary policies. Do we know anything else? Not really. We don't know whether he might turn out to be someone like Gorbachev. So maybe he changes uh, all of a sudden that he is at the helm of the Bundesbank. We don't know. I think there has only been one single real public appearance over the last six or seven years from Joachim Nagel. So we have to assume that he will continue the tradition of Jens Weidmann. He is international. He is European. So I hope that he will be an even more constructive part of the ECB in, in, in shaping the discussion. That was Karsten Brzezki speaking to Monaco's Chris Jemak for Tuesday's edition of The Globalist. We have time for just one more highlight, and it's from this week's edition of The Foreign Desk. It is a truth universally acknowledged that the fastest way to a person's heart is through their stomach. Indeed, every diplomatic conclave ever conducted has had one thing in common. The participants need to eat. Food has therefore become a tool of statecraft and even a weapon of soft power. So as millions of families stuck into their leftovers from the festive season, This week's episode of The Foreign Desk took a closer look at the role of food in global politics. Without further ado, here is a snippet from the episode in which Monaco's Andrew Miller speaks to the former White House pastry chef Sam Chappell Sokol and Michael Binion, a veteran foreign correspondent at The Times. Sam, first of all, culinary diplomacy itself. Why does it work so well, do you think? There are some academic precedent explaining why culinary diplomacy works, if and when it works. There's an idea called the contact theory, which was proposed in the 1950s, I believe, by an American sociologist. The study was done in an apartment building, and, and a lot of folks from different backgrounds came together in the same building, and the research showed that just their presence made each of them more likely to like each other, understand each other's backgrounds, hear each other's stories due to the proximity. And I think a lot of culinary diplomacy comes from that same idea. Just being able to sit at the same table really is a powerful thing. And then it goes even deeper through the connection of food, of eating together. Eating is one of the most important acts we do. We have to do it multiple times a day. It literally sustains us. It keeps us alive. So the fact that we have such a visceral connection to food, then when we share that experience with other people, especially in a close space like the dinner table or the lunch table, it really has a powerful effect for connection, for communication, for bringing people closer together. Michael, have there been cases, though, and you will know this as a lifelong observer of the global diplomatic scene, have there been cases of a meal actually having genuine real-world effects on the rest of us, for good or for ill? 
Yes, when America was trying to negotiate a deal with Iran, the nuclear deal actually was the original talks, not the latest ones, which still haven't really got anywhere, but the original deal that Obama tried to negotiate. And they sat in different rooms and they didn't see each other until the Iranians suggested that the Americans go round for a July the 4th independence celebration, which Iranians were going to host. And they said, we won't talk business. We're not going to talk about nuclear weapons. We're just going to have a nice time together. They ate and they met. And within 10 days, they'd got a deal done. You would like to think that the cuisine had something to do with it. But Sam, given that those kind of stakes can be in play, as somebody who has done it, how intimidating is it cooking for heads of state, people that you know are going to be having that level of discussion over whatever you've served up? There's a level, I guess, of intimidation. There's also a level of excitement that being a cook, being a chef, you actually have a stake in the conversation. You have a stake in the outcome, potentially. You can't really measure the return on an investment of a meal. But I think as a chef, you feel some power and some excitement that you really get to have a place at the table, literally and figuratively, which is rare for chefs and cooks to have that sort of position. Michael, I'm assuming, for obvious reasons, it wouldn't have been a factor at the example you cited of the Iranians hosting an Independence Day meal for the Americans. But how often is what is served to accompany the food the factor, i.e. the drink, in the way that great issues of state get addressed? (laughs) Well, drink plays an enormous part, and sometimes it's used to encourage eloquence and sometimes it's used to intimidate. Stalin famously used to invite people round, I mean, his underlings, to the Kremlin, where he would give great banquets, and he would make them all drink till they were basically out of control. And if they didn't drink, then they were in trouble. And if they did drink, they were in even more trouble. And it was a way of Stalin used to assert his authority over his ministers and his underlings. Drink, it can make people more reckless. They can say things they might not have said before. It's very useful. It also depends what you feed people. If you want to produce a good outcome, you produce food that is sweet. Apparently, if you feed people a lot of bitter food, like broccoli and dark chocolate and things like that, it leaves a bitter taste. A sweet deal, as they say, is very often because of a sweet meal. And that's why the dessert comes last. And together with the drink, it really unlocks people's inhibitions so that they say the thing they shouldn't have said, or they do the deal they may not otherwise have done. Sam, is there anything to that in your experience? Have you, have you ever known chefs preparing a great state banquet to be given specific directions about what they should be cooking in order to bring about a preferred political outcome? It's an interesting question, which you put on a menu. Do you make a menu that has nods and influences from both backgrounds, both cultures and orders, so that there's that unity feeling? Or do you make a meal that just reflects your own or the host's own background to really show deeply what you're proud of as a nation. I think in the former example, there was a great moment during 2018, the inter-Korean summit between Kim Jong-un and President Moon Jae-in of North and South Korea. And the South Koreans more or less hosted the dinner and made a meal that reflected dishes from both countries. And I think there was a huge amount of respect from both sides that outcomes and the diplomacy between the two leaders really came to be because of this unity meal that it represented dishes from the north and the south. There was an iconic dish called Roshti from Switzerland, which was an almost 
a quiet acknowledgement that Kim Jong-un had gone to high school in Switzerland. There was a bibimbap with greens that were grown in the DMZ, in the demilitarized zone, and an iconic buckwheat noodle dish, a cold noodle dish from Pyongyang that actually kept making appearances on menus between the two leaders for the following summits. And it was reported that this noodle dish brought about this convivial atmosphere between the two of them. So I do think that what's on the menu has a lot of power in what the discussion ends up being. Michael, has that ever been demonstrated, the power of what's on the menu by the fact of it not going entirely according to plan? Well, if the person who's been invited actually finds the dishes pretty disgusting, it can go very wrong. I mean, there was a famous incident, and I think it would be unfair to blame it on the food, but in 1992, President Bush, George Bush Sr., was visiting Japan, where he was at a state dinner, and halfway through the dinner, they'd had, I think, a typical Japanese sort of fish dish, and then some Japanese beef, and then suddenly George Bush vomited all over the lap of the Japanese Prime Minister sitting next to him, And I think that wasn't so much a reflection on the menu, but the fact that Mr. Bush was actually feeling a little bit unwell. So that rather put a bit of a a sudden end to the state dinner. Sorry about there's actually a term for it. Bushu suru is to do a bush. And that means to vomit into somebody's lap up, up until this day. And it's, it's, it's come up again and again. So sorry to interrupt. No, it's a very good point. I hope it doesn't happen too often. <laughs> Rather a reflection on the host's culinary taste. In that instance, you can see that that wouldn't lead to any great lasting diplomatic ructions because the United States and Japan by that point were allies of long standing. But Sam, among the coterie of people who cook for political leaders, are there legends and myths and cautionary tales that lurk of other times where it just all went wrong or got completely out of hand or not necessarily up to the George Bush point, but with perhaps more lasting consequences? There was a moment in 2016, never even got to the meal. President Rouhani of Iran was touring Europe and made a strict rule that none of the lunches he attended could have wine served at them. And he stopped in Italy and the Italians complied. But then when he wanted to have this luncheon in France with Francois Hollande at the time, whether it's jingoism, whether it's French nationalism, or whether it was just Hollande had double booked himself, but he canceled the entire meal because he insisted that they would have to have wine at lunch. Who knows if that had a lasting impact? You know, I don't think that there's been a lot of love lost between those two nations, but that sort of thing certainly doesn't help a relationship along when you cancel an entire state luncheon. Michael, on the diplomatic circuit generally, are there any particular countries which are renowned for giving an especially good dinner? Is there a country who, wherever they are in the world, whatever their embassy is, is the one that everybody always wants to get invited to? Well, it certainly used to be France. I mean, France made enormous efforts and took their cuisine extremely seriously. And most people would enjoy French cuisine. It was exquisite. It was well done. They still have a reputation, of course, for serving fantastic food and wine. But other countries have taken culinary diplomacy probably much more seriously. And interestingly, it's nearly all Southeast Asian countries, places like Thailand, Malaysia, Taiwan, South Korea, Cambodia, All these places actually run courses in culinary diplomacy. They make their diplomats study what a good meal can do and should do and how to arrange a really good dinner. They take it very seriously, both for influencing 
policy with other countries, but also in the broader sense that they have food festivals and food fairs. For these countries, food is a kind of soft power weapon, as it were, which they use to influence other countries. And spreading their cuisine around the world is a key way of getting their countries known and appreciated. Sam, just as a final thought, and to take it back to your own direct experience of having been a pastry chef at the White House, when you think back on your time there, was there one particular dish that you regarded in retrospect as either perhaps both a particular challenge or a particular triumph? Well, I was a pastry chef during the Obama years, 2012 to 2014, and there was a dessert for the state dinner we did with Francois Hollande. I believe that was in 2014. Bill Yossis was the executive pastry chef at the time, and he was creative. He was playful. He really liked the approach of almost merging the two backgrounds and combining the French and the American. He was a French trained chef, so it was easy for him to do, but he created this dessert that is a classic American dessert called a yodel. It's like a Swiss roll coated in chocolate. And we made this really high class Swiss roll um, yodel that we actually used a paint gun a normal paint gun, which we added cacao and cocoa butter to. So we pretty much used this as a gun and and shot chocolate spray all over each of these faux yodels, these these high-class yodels, so that they had this really nice velvety textured look. And one of the chocolates we featured in this dessert was a Hawaiian chocolate to speak to Obama's background, having been raised in Hawaii. And obviously a lot of French technique with the Swiss roll itself. And obviously, I wasn't in the room when the two presidents were eating this dessert, but getting to create it, getting to see the creation process and knowing that this went to the both of them and that it was on the menu and both presidents could read the description and understand the idea behind it. I'll never forget that dessert. I'll never forget how it tasted. And I'll never forget using a paint gun to literally shoot hundreds of these of these little chocolate Swiss rolls. That was the former White House pastry chef Sam Chappell Sokol and Michael Binian, a veteran foreign correspondent at The Times, speaking to Monaco Sandra Miller for this week's edition of The Foreign Desk. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24 and thanks for listening. <laughs>